0: Welcome to COPcast. I'm Rumbi Chakamba, Associate Editor at DEVEX, and I've headed to Shamal Sheik in Egypt for this year's United Nations Climate Conference. In this podcast series, we bring you inside the walls of the Blue Zone for a series of in-depth conversations with climate and development leaders, asking them the big questions. What's really needed to make meaningful progress towards climate goals, and what role should the development community play to support that?
1: The decision to decarbonize has been taken, and that now opens the door to really have a conversation about everything and include adaptation and make adaptation a very central topic. The private
0: sector has a key role to play in investing in climate change adaptation. And yet, currently only 1.6% of all adaptation funding comes from private investment. Our next guest, Matthias Berninger, is a leading voice within the business community. He also knows a thing or two about COPS, as a regular attendee at the conferences. Now head of sustainability and public affairs at Bayer, he's seen many sides of the food and agriculture space over the course of his career. In the public sector, he was vice minister in Germany's Green Party, and in the private sector, he previously worked on health and nutrition strategy at Mars. In this episode of COPcast, Berninger tells DevEx President and Editor-in-Chief Raj Kumar what three critical words the Glasgow Declaration left out, plus three things every company should be doing in order to achieve net zero by 2050.
2: Well, I'm here at COP, a very noisy COP, as probably our listeners can tell, uh, with Matthias Berninger. I mean, I think of you as somebody I go to for counsel, advice, insight on a whole range of issues around food, around agriculture, and water, and health. Um, You know, you've had a long career in all of those spaces, starting out as an elected official yourself in Germany, uh, leading consumer protection and nutrition, working on agriculture issues around Germany, and now you've had a whole career at Mars and now at Bayer. This is your domain, the COP. I mean, you know this really well. what does it mean for you this year? What are, you t- what are some of your big takeaways so far? And I, and I want to dig into that discussion with you a bit today.
1: What I like is that I've seen COP from different angles. I've been one of these parliamentarians walking around here thinking, why does nobody care about me? I've been part of the government at the negotiation table in Johannesburg, for example. Um, and uh, then, uh, both at my time at Mars and now at Bayer, I I, uh, have been representing the business uh, uh, kind of community, and uh, uh, it's really interesting to look at this event from different angles. I know there are a few others, but these angles alone are fascinating for me.
2: And you made a point to me uh, recently that food and water have really not been at the top of the agenda in prior COPs. Is that changing now?
1: Yeah. So when you look at the Glasgow Declaration, which was the document uh, uh, that uh, was really fought hard um, uh, uh, by the British presidency, it's more than 5,000 words. Three words are missing in that declaration. Agriculture, food, and water. Now, water is the most curious one to me, because water is the molecule or the elements through which we all feel climate change Uh, and that gives you a flavor of how complex these negotiations are and how difficult it is to now shift from making sure we fully agree on how to understand and execute against Paris to making sure that we implement what we have agreed in Paris because it's hardly possible to achieve the 1.5 degree limit without focusing on water, food, and agriculture.
2: And to me, it also shows that adaptation has long been on the back burner, and most of the focus has been mitigation, but as you say, we had Hindu Ibrahim, uh, who is a civil rights, human rights activist and leader, uh, indigenous leader from Chad, on on stage at the DevEx events yesterday. And she has long told me about the, the drought in her Lake Chad region. You know, Lake Chad has shrunk by 90%. Yep. And I asked her yesterday, well, what's the latest situation there? And she says, now it's the opposite, too much water. Yep. And as you say, this is how people are experiencing climate. It's very little water and drought, and then suddenly much too much water and erosion. And this is what's making, forcing people to move and forcing people to change their livelihoods yep. and that we need to adapt to. Um, and I guess in prior COPs, it just wasn't the focus, right? This issue of adaptation really wasn't the, the lens through which people saw
1: the Yeah, company. and that has a political reason. And the political reason uh, first was really expressed during the Kyoto negotiations. The Japanese really wanted adaptation to be a central topic. But many of the people that focus on mitigation, on decarbonizing our industries, on reducing the emissions, on what has been achieved in Paris in terms of target setting, so that if we talk about adaptation too much, and dare I say too early, then those who don't want to change will use that as an excuse not to decarbonize. Now we are at a point where decarbonization commitments have been made around the world large economies like India and China, the United States under, under President Biden, the European Union under Ursula von der Leyen, most other governments have made commitments to decarbonisation. The host of the next COP, the United Arab Emirates, has decided to be at net zero in 2050, which is an oil country. So the decision to decarbonize has been taken and that now opens the door to really have a conversation about everything and include adaptation, and make adaptation a very central topic.
2: So water I can see being less controversial, food perhaps more. Water is
1: super controversial. You don't have uh, uh, um, uh, UN conferences on water, normally because it's so controversial. There is no UN body for water. There is no framework dealing with water, and we are the blue planet that gives you a flavor how political the topic is. You usually identify the most controversial issues by them not being mentioned and embraced by the United Nations. So look at what's not in the papers, rather that's what's in the papers. Now, next year, in March, uh, 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 2023, we will have the first UN high-level conference on water in a generation. The last one was 1977 also the year I started school and the reason being it's so politicized um, and that's a conference without a framework I mean the UNF C kind of defines a framework for how we discuss about climate we have no such framework on water that may be a problem or a gigantic opportunity my hope is that since water is the molecules through which we experience climate change, that we start to take much more action on water. That is the central part of our mitigation efforts. And you talked about two ways we experience climate change, flooding and droughts. And um, the third one is we experience climate change through polluted water. And then there is a fourth, which I think is the most traumatic of all, and that is extreme heat, which is high temperatures, above 35 degrees Celsius. Sorry, you can hear my accent, I'm still European. Um, and high humidity. So, so those wet, wet bulb, wet bulb, right? wet bulb 30, 35 situations uh, make it make places for humans uninhabitable.
2: Right, because it's so hot and so humid, you can't actually cool down by sweating.
1: Your circular system completely breaks down. So. And that's where the health part of Bayer, it's an agriculture company, but it's also a company aspirin, 125 years uh, 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 ago developed by Bayer. We are very strong in cardiovascular. So we are looking how extreme heat is actually affecting cardiovascular systems. Extreme heat is killing the same people COVID is killing. But in addition to that, also the very young. Um, And from that vantage point, We need to think about this whole climate adaptation as a topic that puts health as well as all the other topics, food and so on, on the same level. My fear is if we get adaptation wrong, we will get huge, huge, huge um, uh, streams of refugees wandering around in the world. We are talking not millions like at the moment, but billions of people on the move and that is something um, uh, that becomes even more relevant because we are doing so poorly on achieving the 1.5 degree limit.
2: And when you think about health, it sounds like there are going to be a whole new range of health challenges and companies like yours are thinking about how to respond to those already. Is that something you see in your peer pharmaceutical companies too? Do you feel like this is a, a theme?
1: I think uh, there are a couple of uh, companies, um, I would like to name J&J for example, who are even far ahead of what we are doing. So uh, generally speaking, uh, there was um, a group of pharmaceutical companies invited by uh, now King Charles III in the Sustainable Markets Initiative to think about this topic. There is a lot of thinking in the pharmaceutical industry about this. It's not only new health challenges; it's also a rebound of health challenges. In other words, some tropical diseases will be uh, appearing in regions they haven't appeared in a very long time.
2: Diseases like malaria, as an malaria, example?
1: yellow fever. The vectors, the mosquitoes, the insects, um, also the pollution streams of water will will get challenges uh, in regions we haven't seen. An example is Chagas, which is a disease. Um, that is really, really challenging in Central America. We see it more and more even in the United States as partly as a result of migration and partly as a result of climate change. Uh, So so we have to focus on new and old diseases, but when we talk adaptation, the pharmaceuticals industry needs to focus on this topic. It's not the most attractive topic from like the business development uh, kind of perspective. But it's desperately needed because it affects not millions, but billions of people.
2: When you sit at the management committee level of a big company like Bayer, do these topics come up? Are these, you know, central to business decision making nowadays in in a big corporation like yours? Or is it more, okay, you know, Matthias, you're the guy who runs sustainability. You're thinking about this.
1: So we have taken a decision to fully integrate sustainability into our business strategy. To avoid that there is like a conversation of a few experts that hang around at conferences like COP or the UN week or all the other like places of what I call the Global Zoo, or the World Economic Forum also has a place there. Um, we wanted to avoid that. What we wanted is that our strategic decisions are linked to the question, are we really fully integrating sustainability in our business strategy? This is why we have targets related to sustainability that are part of the board remuneration. We have targets that are audited like our financial KPIs, a very good um, way to avoid greenwashing. Um, And why we look at how our R&D budget can be prepared for the future that is expecting us. So we have a good understanding of the kind of problems our customers and our patients will face We have a lot to offer. Are we combining the understanding of the problems with our capabilities in ways that develops the future business? For me, it's integrating sustainability in the business strategy. Do
2: you feel like that is a similar approach that your peer companies are taking as well? Do you think this is becoming more mainstream?
1: I think uh, there are a few companies who are really good at it, and there are lots of companies that are struggling with it. That's how I would describe it. An example of a company that's really good at it is Ørsted in the renewable energy space. They have been a fossil fuel hydrocarbon dependent business and they are now a vanguard company in renewable energy. So they have transformed their business and they turned from being an element of the elementary part of the problem to being an inspiring part of the solution. I wouldn't say that we are there Uh, Agriculture is also more complex I believe than than renewables Uh, but we are getting there. We are getting there because I can see decisions being taken through more than just the financial lens and I can see a lot of attention on the topic on the level of the business leadership team conversations. I'd like us to be faster um, but I'm an impatient person Um, but I can say directionally we have made a couple of really uh, 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 strong decisions uh, that will get us to a place where our vision of health for all hunger for none is not something on a wall but something we inch and hopefully at one point walk and at one point run closer to from a direction.
0: The world is facing
1: an unprecedented global food crisis. Here at DevEx, we're following the state of food insecurity around the world and the solutions that are needed to overcome it. I'm Teresa Welsh, senior reporter, and I'm also the author of DevEx Dish, a free weekly newsletter bringing you a comprehensive look at everything that matters in the world of food. Each Wednesday, Devex Dish will be your guide through the interlocking policy, infrastructure, climate, agriculture, nutrition, and human rights issues, remaking the way food is grown and distributed. Visit Devex.com newsletters to subscribe and get your weekly update on the race for a sustainable global food system.
2: Let's go back to those three words that you say were not in the Glasgow Declaration. Um, water food and agriculture and just quickly on water you talked about the controversy around it now there is going to be more of a global convening what would you want to see come out of that what what is the kind of framework that would help us advance on the issue of water?
1: Spain at this COP um, announced together with Senegal an alliance to address drought now let's talk about drought for a moment drought is especially a problem in the world in years where there is a La Nina moment. Now the Australians go, hang on a minute, La Nina is super, I have rain. But on balance, the rest of the world has a problem when there is a La Nina moment. We have the third La Nina in a row. That is not new, but it's not happening very often. Which means we can predict that the drought that is ravaging China, that is ravaging East Africa, Europe, the Midwest of the United States, parts of Latin America, is gonna again create a lot of trouble next year. How can you fight drought? First of all, we have to stick to 1.5 degrees. We are roughly at a degree temperature increase right now. We want to set ourselves a limit of 1.5, which in and itself means more drought. Um, the second thing we need to do, since we will not be able to uh, restore or keep our glaciers. Our glaciers are gone. They are still there, but there is no way that they will stay.
2: Even at 1.5? Even at
1: 1.5. They are melting in some parts of the world at a rapid pace. The reason of this mega flood in Pakistan is linked to it. But we had a record loss of glaciers in the Alps as well this year. They will not be a source of fresh water anymore. This is not a trivial problem. Water is not a renewable resource. We always talk about the water cycle. The water cycle exists, but it exists on a planetary scale. It doesn't exist in a way that we can reliably get our water back. We are losing access to fresh water at a rapid pace, in some areas in uncontrolled ways, like for example in Pakistan. So blue water, water that comes from glaciers, water that comes from uh, from the clouds as the result of um, all the water that you see in the atmosphere, above oceans and so on, will be less and less reliable. Green water is where we can do a lot. How do we know the difference between green and blue water? Figure it out by looking at the radioactive isotopes of oxygen. And then you see whether a tree or a plant was growing with blue water or with green water. Whether the water evaporated from a plant or from the sea. And uh, that gets us to very interesting findings. 70% of all rainfall in Burkina Faso, and arguably there's not a lot of rainfall there, is originating in the forests of East Africa. So, forest protection is not only important to avoid that we have additional emissions, it's also important to ensure that green water supply in Latin America, in the Sahel, in parts of Asia stays a reliable source to grow food. 50% of all water in Asia goes only in one crop, rice. 50%. So if we we don't get this right, we have a problem because without water, plants don't absorb carbon. If they don't absorb carbon, they don't produce food. They don't grow. Water is super essential. Now Spain and um, Senegal, have started an initiative. And China and the US both were the first to join uh, to systematically fight droughts. The number one recipe is don't chop down forests. Ensure that you invest in uh, nature-based solutions, in this case, in plants. They are really important for decarbonization, but they are absolutely essential for livelihoods around the world. So you could say, well, decarbonization, I don't care. Water, no matter whether you're a rich farmer, a small farmer, organic farmer, traditional agriculture, water, without water you can do nothing.
2: As you come to an event like this, you talk to many different people, and there's a lot of people here with a single lens or a siloed issue that they've come in here to talk about, right? Is there anything that sort of frustrates you, or is there kind of any common misunderstanding or anything you walk away saying, I just wish people knew this, and it would really be an unlock for them?
1: I'm not frustrated, it's a slow process, but boy, it's the, the whole world comes together and tries to solve existential problems. I'd much rather have us coming together in a messy way than staying in our corners. So I'm quite happy with the mess and with the bus and running into people. I, I think it's, it's a good thing, it's a celebration that we try to fix something. Now there are a couple of people, including in the business world, who don't want that. And the oil industry has a historic chance. They have the highest profits ever in their history. And my, I implore them to basically use those profits wisely. Yeah? They, can, they can outspend me on lobbying any day. They can, they can decide whether they invest in the future or not. But they have a historic opportunity to do that. The one thing I think people need to understand us when we talk about 1.5 degrees, it's a, it's a very comfortable conversation in a way, because nobody produces a degree. We produce parts per million, or as a company millions of tons of emissions, or as sectors billions of tons of emissions. And I would like us to pivot from talking about degrees Celsius to parts per million to the concentration of carbon in the atmosphere. We know, also on this COP, it's the 27th, the concentration of carbon still goes up. We have to reach a point where that stops. Then I'm even happier. It's not growing as fast as it would have grown without the COPs, but it needs to stop, it needs to pivot and then go down. And what I would like to kind of for people to take away is how do we actually achieve net zero by 2050. Everybody says we want want to do it, but what does it really mean? And it's very complicated and very simple at the same time. So no matter whether you are Devex, Bayer, Chevron, you name it, you need to do three things. You need to grow carbon neutral. And carbon neutral growth between now and 2030 for means I need to take out the 30% additional emissions that, I, that would occur if I didn't grow carbon neutral. The second thing you need to do, you need to cut your emissions in half every 10 years. That means for DevEx, many more online events than in-person events. It means for us, we need to invent products that are less carbon intensive, that needs to be part of our R&D process. It means for other companies, other things, but we have to cut them in half, one way or the other. And for every company that doesn't do it, somebody else has to do it. In the first two things, you can do carbon capture and storage, and I know the oil industry talks a lot about it. They will not be able to store half of the emissions they currently produce through carbon capture and storage. If they store up one or two or three or four or five percent, I will literally kind of like applaud them and will say, wow, that exceeds my expectations. After you have done that, grow carbon neutral, cut your emission in half every decade for three decades. You then have to offset the rest, mainly with plant-based solutions. Every company that commits to stand by parents to stay within the 1.5 degree limit has to make that operation. Now, this gives you a flavor why you can't delegate that to a sustainability team. It's one of the biggest transformations since the introduction of hydrocarbons and since industrialization. That's why it's a topic for business leadership teams and for investors. So when I talk to our major investors, that's the conversation I have is I said, you want us to be carbon neutral by 2050. The invisible hand of the market turns green. That's awesome. But you can't form a fist when I as a business walk in that transition and you as an investor have to also endure the pain. And that's currently my problem. The investors want this without any downsides for for their shareholders. There will be downsides and pain for everybody. Collectively, we can make that happen, but it's really, really hard. It's not complicated, but it's really, really hard to do that.
2: And I think the way you describe it is apt even for people who aren't in the business world, people in the global development sector, who have long seen climate as a silo or a technical area and are starting to wake up to the idea that this is cross cutting across everything you do. Yes. If it's health, and you you focus on health, you need to know climate because it's gonna change everything.
1: Everything is gonna change.
2: And certainly food systems, and certainly as you say, water and sanitation, you name the issue, everyone has to be invested in climate. Um, So
1: the way I think about this, gravity is changing. So if you are a juggler, a circus artist, you are able to juggle balls and you know how to do it and you've done it for 20, 30 years and you have muscle memory and, and suddenly gravity is changing. You look pretty silly on stage as a result of that. That's how we need to think about climate change. That's how radical the changes will be, and not for a few, literally for all of us. And um, there is no discrimination on this one. There also won't be many winners.
2: Yeah, well, I, I really appreciate taking the time to talk with us today, and I'm sure the listeners can hear just how valuable your insights are and why I'm constantly pinging you for ideas. Thank you so much, Matthias Berninger. It's been a real pleasure to be here at this COP with you.
0: Thanks for listening to Copcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please share it with others you think would be interested in it. You can also leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. If you have some feedback about this episode that you want to share, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on social media at Devex and at Rumbi Chakamba underscore or you can drop us an email at podcast at devx.com.